All right. So let's go into this story of Jesus having a conversation with one person. And I really love this story because essentially God relates to everyone one person at a time. God knows how to talk to the masses. God knows how to address nations. But because God is spirit, he actually has an individual relationship with every single person, whether they know it or not. And so we're going to deal with one interaction in one of these relationships. And the background is that Jesus is in his ministry and he's traveling around. And um, you could only travel by foot back then. And so Jesus is going from one place to another on foot. And they decide to travel through Samaria. And sometimes they weren't even allowed to go through it. You might remember that one time they tried to enter Samaria and they were actually resisted from it. And the sons of thunder were like, well, should we call down fire and kill all these people? And Jesus, Jesus just gives them one of those like, are you serious looks? And off they go. But they are traveling through Samaria. And as I understand the history, this is the background. Samaria was the, the capital city of northern Israel way back, way back, way back. And it was always known as the unbelieving city. Um, northern Israel, after the kingdom was divided, never had a faithful king. They had prophets that were faithful, but they never had a faithful king. But after the exile, what happened was this area was populated by people who were either the poorest of the, the Israelites who were never taken off to exile. And I think the Assyrians or the Babylonians may have repopulated this area with other foreigners to kind of mix up the people groups because way back in the day when empires conquered other nations, sometimes what they would do, they would move people around so that people lost that sense of, this is my home, to try to undercut a sense of rebellion, right? You wouldn't be fighting for your homeland if you didn't live in your homeland anymore. And so they would actually do that to peoples to try to break their spirit and make them less willing to rebel. And so Samaria ended up being this place where it was a people that weren't true Israelites. Plus, somewhere along the line, they had this Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And I don't know how it happened, but somewhere in there, the Ten Commandments got changed to say, one of the commandments is, is, you shall worship on this mountain. It's actually in their Bible. So I think, I don't know if they added it and called it the tenth one, or if they took out, thou shalt not covet, and put in, you shall worship on this mountain. But their Bible said, if you're going to be a true worshiper, you have to worship on our mountain. And that debate's going to come up. Which is really, in one sense, really smart, because thou shalt not covet is the one of the Ten Commandments that no one can, can not sin, right? Every, yeah, I can not murder. I know I can get away with not stealing. Yeah, but are you envious? Shut up, let's fight. You know, everybody falls down on that one at least. That's the one that no one can get away with. So you've never resented your life. You've never wanted to be somebody else. You've never wanted something you don't have. You've never done that? Oh, okay, so this number 10 is the, the kill all or the convict all one. So if you can take that out and just say, thou shalt worship at Calvary Church. See, so much easier. So much easier. Whoop, grace. Okay, no, not. You got to keep the book the way the book was meant to be. But that's part of the background. And so there was tensions and divisions. And then this scenario happened. This is John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on that, this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Did I ever tell you the story of when Scratchy Cat learned to purr? If you're newer here, as a church, we've been enduring the ongoing saga of Scratchy Cat. I'm growing your character with these made-up stories. Scratchy Cat was a bit of a varmint cat, a homeless cat, and when he wasn't scrounging for food in garbage cans, do cats really eat fish bones like they do in the cartoons? I don't know, but let's say he was having mostly living off of old fish bones and mice he could catch, pigeons stuck in the ducks, whatever he could find that really happened. Weird. Scratchy Cat really liked to jump out of bushes and scratch dogs. That's what he loved to do. We, we remember these stories, don't we? And dog, there was this one particular dog that went on a daily walk with Master, and that dog often would get his nose all clawed up by Scratchy Cat, who would do his dirty deed and run off kind of laughing to himself, however it is that cats sound like when they're laughing. Has anyone ever heard a cat laugh before? <laughs> It's probably something like that, but with a fur ball. Anyhow, this all happened when Scratchy Cat was pretty new to Master's house. So he'd gotten attacked by a raccoon or something like that, and he got hurt. And Master had come along and felt very sad for this cat, even though this cat had caused him so much trouble. He wanted to have grace on him, so he took the cat home and nursed him back to health. And as Scratchy Cat was getting back to health, he, 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 he was a bit 
get double-minded if cats have minds. And um, that was a joke. They do. I know they do. Cat lovers of the world, have mercy on me. But Scratchy Cat was a bit double-minded. He, there were things about living with Master he really liked. But it also felt really weird. He didn't mind staying dry when it rained outside. But he didn't really love not being able to go wherever he wanted to. He didn't mind that there was always a bowl of food with something in there that smelled like roadkill and barbecue sauce. And he liked the flavor of at least one of those things. But he didn't love kind of getting told what to do sometimes. And so Scratchy Cat was trying to figure out this life of living with Master. And Scratchy Cat would sometimes run away, and maybe for a day or two, but then when he got hungry, he'd come back because he knew there was a bowl of food waiting for him. And, and sometimes Scratchy Cat would let Master pet him, and sometimes Scratchy Cat didn't want to get touched. He's a cat. And so he'd do one of those like bat-at-Master's-hands things and run off and find a roof tile somewhere to go and push up and hide and disappear for a few hours in, whatever cats do. Well, one day, after Scratchy Cat was just in this internal struggle, cats are nature's philosophers, he's in this internal struggle about what the good life is meant to be like. and He's just kind of filled up on some cat food. And he looks over and he sees that Master's lap looks particularly warm today. And it's not too warm in the house, and cats like to conserve energy. They're really calorie conscious. They, they, they want to keep as many calories as they can get. And so that lap looked particularly warm and particularly comfortable. And so we kind of trying to exude vibes of nonchalance and exude vibes of not caring whether Master lived or died. He walked closer to Master and jumped into his lap and kind of just sat there, warming up. And as he sat there with his warm belly and warm full belly, he thought the earth began to shake. And he jumped up, ran off the lap, and thought it must have been an earthquake. We're all going to die. But oh, as he got off, everything calmed down a little bit. And he thought, well, you know, that lap was awfully warm and my belly's still kind of full. So he went back and he jumped back on Master's lap and he lay there for a little bit. And again, everything began to shake. But then he realized it wasn't everything else. It was coming from inside him. This weird shaking vibration thingy. What is this thing? He thought to himself. Scratchy Cat was so confused. He's having these strangest feelings. Too much? I could go on, but... Scratchy Cat was experiencing these feelings he'd never had before of contentment, home, relationship. And it was inside of him and coming out. And he was doing the closest thing that cats do to worship. He was resting with enjoyment with his master. Today, out of this story, I want to talk to us about the Father's seeking of worshipers. Jesus said the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I want to just share some thoughts about this. And I want to start off by 
by just talking about where Jesus says that God is spirit. Do you know what a spirit is? Do you know what spirit is? Good question. It's really interesting because it's kind of this word that people use to say it's something, but it's just not like anything that's a thing. Right? It's something that's real, but you can't taste it, touch it, smell it, weigh it. You can kind of feel it, but it's not a kind of feeling like when you grab a a mic stand. It's spirit. It's this existence that's really, 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 really real, but not the kind of real that a scientist can verify in a lab or with a microscope or a telescope. It's spirit. And Jesus says to, to this, this, this woman he's talking to in the middle of their interesting conversation slash debate, if you want to know about real worship, you need to remember, first of all, that God is spirit. He's really, 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 really real. But he's not the kind of being that you can say, you have to stand on that mountain in order to worship him right. Or you have to stand on that mountain in order to worship him right because he's spirit. It's it's not about geography. It's not even necessarily about body posture. It's not about your ethnicity. And it's not about... Almost anything that we could list as being important things about life. Worship is about spirit because God is spirit. And even as human beings, we can, and even like the charismatic ones amongst us, we can think that, you know, being like humans, like material humans with bones and skin and fat and blood inside of us that you can hit and touch and smell and cut and burn and all those interesting things that we do to each other ourselves hopefully not the burning to each other but mostly just by accident to ourselves we can think that this is the real stuff and this came first but when jesus says god is spirit and the father's spirit he's actually reminding us that spirit comes first God was a spirit for all eternity before we were ever made and put on the scene. We're, we're second. Spirit's first. And I can kind of see this weird spirit angle going on by how every time Jesus says something to this woman, she doesn't really understand what he's talking about because he's coming at her from heaven, from the spiritual world, and she hears everything from the earthly kind of material world. He says, I could give you living water to drink. She says, show me your bucket. He's not really talking about water. And where he takes her in this conversation about God being spirit, is it's about her learning to experience a new kind of fatherhood. This is how this ties in with Father's Day. I usually don't tie things in with the day because I've got this little rebellious spirit in my heart to say, Hallmark doesn't tell me what I preach about. You know what I mean? Today we are. Here's the connection. He meets this woman by well. 
And she, from her kind of material, historical, geographical, wants to argue with Jesus the Jew about whose fathers are right about how worship should go. And he wants to present to her, how about God becomes your father and he teaches you how to be a true worshiper. And so the spirit is going to come down with a new way of being a child to have God as your father. A God who doesn't come or go, but is always there because he's spirit. A father who doesn't have good days or bad days because he's always the same, because he's the good spirit. A father who doesn't ever lose his temper because he's got unlimited patience. A God who doesn't kind of spend the money on wrong things because he's got unlimited wealth. Here is a new father who's the great spirit. And this is what she needs. She needs to take whatever she's learned from her experience of fathers, whether having a father or being married to a father or a history of fatherhood, which is her people's fathers. All of that needs to come now and bow down in the presence of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she needs to learn how to be a child of the true Father, the Father God. One of the things that I've noticed about reading this story is that this one woman in her life encapsulates pretty much all of the conflicts that people can get into. When she says to him, how can you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? She's summing up all of the race relation problems that human beings can get into. When she says to him, I don't have a husband, because she's kind of concealing what's going on there. And Jesus says, yeah, because you've, you've had quite a few. She encapsulates in her life all the battle of the sexes and all the things that can go wrong between man and woman. When she says, your people say we should worship in Jerusalem, but my dads have said we should worship on this mountain, she gathers together in herself all the religious conflicts that people have in the world, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Christianity and all the ways that we can conflict over all these things. And I could go on, but these are the things people fight about. These are the things people war about. These are the things people kill and die over. And all of them are right here in this woman Jesus is talking to. And what's kind of interesting is how Jesus says, you know, all these things that you carry around in your brain, all these things that you carry around in your heart, we can be talking for one minute and all the the problems of all of humanity are already talked about in this one minute. Jesus' response to her is, my dad is seeking true worshipers. And the subtext, even a bit farther, is my dad is seeking you, Samaritan lady, to become a true worshiper. My dad is seeking you through me, Samaritan woman, to become what you were always meant to be. And there is this sense of Jesus kind of calling her out of real life and calling her out of normal life and calling her to see things from the spiritual, see things from the heavenly perspective as a way of totally transforming her and totally changing how she sees things.
Okay, let's talk about the father seeking here. I'm going to be leaving a few sermon points on the page and with deep regrets. Maybe the Lord will help me bring it back in. Scripture says, For the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I don't know about you, but often when I think about God, I often think about God in heaven or on his throne, kind of waiting to see what I'll do next. Is that normal for anybody else? Your relationship with God is a lot about what you're doing wrong in God's sight or going to try to change for God or do for God. And that's all fine and good. But here is a woman meeting God for the first time, for real. He says, Jesus says to her, you worship what you don't know, <laughs> which is a bit like we might have to deal with that. But he says to her, you don't actually know God yet. And the first thing that he wants her to know about the Father is that the Father is active. The Father is taking initiative. The Father is seeking. The Father's on the move. The Father's the one changing things. The Father's the one doing things. The Father's the one accomplishing things. And I think one of the things that this Father's Day that, if I could put it into our hearts, you know, I'm talking about trying to get rest and trying to get peace. Have we forgotten that our Father is on the move during these days? I I totally have. Have we been convinced that it's going to have to be people alone who solve all these problems? I've totally been thinking that. And I've totally forgotten the first lesson that Jesus taught the Samaritan woman is that the Father is active and on the move and he is a worship seeker. He seeks them out. He goes. And Jesus is the seeking of God. That's why he came down from heaven. Jesus was with the Father as the Son for all eternity, enjoying his glory, being totally enjoyed. And the Father at one point said to Jesus, Jesus, remember the plan? Because as far as I know, they've known the plan forever. He says, the plan is for me to give you a gift. It is true worshipers, people who truly worship me. I give them to you and I want you to go get them. I seek them, you go find them and you bring them to me. And Jesus says, yes, dad, I will do it. And because I always obey and I have all power, I will not fail. I'll bring everyone you've given to me, to you. He's the action. He's the mover. He's the shaker. He's the Lord. He moves. And this is one of the things that I I would just, for my own heart, that I want to remember is that no matter what's going on or what I'm doing or not doing, the father is on the move. He is not passive. He's not distracted. He's not lost on a fishing boat somewhere. Fishing is great. He's not down in the basement playing. We we is fine. He is not neglectful. He is not ignorant. He is not lost. He's not dead. God gets more done in a second than I will do in my entire life. He maintains the lives of seven billion human beings and who knows how many hundreds of trillions of other living creatures. Do you know how many krill are in the sea? Every single one of them made and upheld and dying when they die at the Lord's command and will. He knows where every electron and every molecule is at any given moment, even though we need to invent things like quantum mechanics to kind of even try to predict where it might be. Sorry, physics people. Tim, you can correct me on that one. Something like that, right? Can you just make me feel better? This, for me, is an A-plus from Tim. (laughs) 
He knows all history and he knows all future and he knows what he wants to do with our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows where every sparrow is and how to feed them and where they might die. And not just that they might die, but that they might die to feed Scratchy Cat because Scratchy Cat needs to eat. Our Father is active. And on the move. And he has plans. Corey Tamboom used to say, you remember we talked about her last work. She used, last time we used, she used to say, God has no problems. He only has plans. Which is something for someone who went through a concentration camp in the Second World War to say. God does not have problems. He only has plans. He's a seeker. He's active. He moves. It doesn't mean he doesn't want us to seek sometimes and that it's not, he will, he'll reject our seeking. No, he loves it when we seek too. But if we don't know that the Father is on the move for love and for our, for our good and for our fruitfulness, we don't know him yet, like that Samaritan woman. Isn't my relationship with God just about me trying to get on the right mountain? Your relationship with God starts because God made it start. He sought you out. He loved you. He brought you the gospel. He changed your heart to find the truth about Jesus precious. He changed Jesus from just being something you learned about when you were a kid to something that you need to respond to, to someone you love and someone you like to make this book not just something boring or annoying or a tragedy from history, but to make it actually God speaking to you. If those changes happen to you, it's because God the Father sought you out to do it through his Son and through his Spirit. You're already loved What's this act of God, what's this act of Father saying to you today? I know sometimes it's hard to hear it, but because God is in control and because God loves us, in some sense, every single thing that happens is a part of God's plan for glorifying Jesus and making us useful and training us in righteousness. And it's an opportunity somehow to partner with the God who's active in doing things. And sometimes we get frustrated because we can't see the plan and sometimes the pain is lasting too long and sometimes we're convinced he doesn't love us because things aren't going the way we assume they should go if God is an active seeking father. And I have found that never to be true. Eventually... But whatever's going on today, have you looked at it through the lens of walking with a father who seeks you and loves you and wants to use you for good? And plug for world missions. The father seeks out worshipers by sending his worshipers to seek out people who don't worship him yet. That is evangelism. That is outreach. That is world missions. The worst thing that can happen to any human being is to live their life and die without worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And so worshipers of the Lord are called to go and make worshipers of the Lord because that's what God is like. He goes and he seeks. Amen? Now, let me just talk about the worship part. What does, I'm really grateful that Jean read us or quoted to us an excerpt from a dictionary about worship. That has never happened before at Calvary Chapel. So, be blessed. Maybe there'll be a badge.
ancient dictionary quoted at church badge. But one of the things about the word worship for me that I keep trying to wrap my brain around is that when we say worship, we tend to mean singing. Correct? Right? And that's good. That's a big part of it. But both the Hebrew and the Greek words for worship actually means to like bow down. It means to actually like bend your body down, to kneel down, to bow down, sometimes to lay prostrate before people. That's what it means. And so I often wonder when the Samaritan woman is listening to Jesus talk and they're talking back and forth, they say, they're they're not saying, are you supposed to go sing your songs at this mountain or sing your songs at that mountain? Or maybe they do, but I'm not sure because they're actually saying, I'm supposed to go bow down on this mountain or am I supposed to go bow down at this mountain? And Jesus says, God is looking for people who will bow down when they bow down in spirit and in truth. That's how they're going to bow down. Which sounds a little bit different than singing. Right? And this is where I'm coming, bringing it back to the Scratchy Cat story. True, true worship in spirit and truth is about bowing down. Not exclusive to singing. No one can say, like, let's ditch the singing part of church. Wouldn't that make the services so short? I love short services. Let's just all get together, get our little gardening pads out, bow down. Get, you know, this isn't an either or. But when they're talking, they're using words that have different meanings than just singing. And I wonder if sometimes we miss something by not having our brains go off with postures of bowing down when we talk about worship. Why? Number one, bowing down is a picture of coming to God in humility. Right? Singing can sometimes be about, is this going to be the song I like? Is it going to be in my key? Are they going to hit that awesome note on the bass where I can feel all the mucus in my lungs? You know, have you, did you feel that note? There's that one note in a couple of songs, boom, and you're just like, that, that's as close to purring as I think we get. As when some boom, you're like, brrrr, inside your chest. That's not what, it's, it's, it's like this. It's this posture of humility. The Father is looking for sons and daughters who will come to him by the power of the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit in the truth of knowing who Jesus is and knowing that the God is the Father of Jesus Christ will come with humility. Come saying, I can't do this. I can't do this alone. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. I can't, I'm so poor. God, I can't do this. I don't, I don't even want to try anymore. I don't want it to be about my strength or my accomplishment. I don't want it to be about my reputation. I want to bow down. I want to be in a room where you're the most important person in the room. I want to forget about myself. I want to humble myself. I don't want it to be about me. I'm bowing down. I'm getting low. I'm being humble. And as much as being humble can feel humiliating sometimes in some circumstances, man, sometimes I hate being humbled. There's something about embracing humility, embracing bowing down, where you finally get to rest. This is a position of rest. Dad, I don't want to be in charge of these things alone. I don't want to be left alone to see if this succeeds. I don't want to have to take care of myself. I don't want to be stuck in my head with my thoughts and my worries and my anger and my frustrations. I bow down. Be king. Be dad. Be God. Take care of me. Take care of me. Take care of us. Take care of this. 
it's also a picture of vulnerability. Sometimes people would say, you know, if you went and bowed down to a king in the Old Testament times, kings usually had like clubs and swords and stuff like that. So if you go and you bow down to them, they can just... Or... You're actually making yourself vulnerable before somebody in power. You're stretching out your neck. You can hit, hit me here and I'm toast. And there's this picture of vulnerability before the Father. Anybody scared of vulnerability ever? You bet. I, I hate vulnerability. That's why I fantasize about being an ultimate fighting champion someday. <laughs> there's a reason why everyone watches kung fu movies. And it's not for the dialogue. Man, I just wish one time I could face 20 people and just pull their legs right out of their sockets. Just like in that movie. That I saw, just, like uh, well, oh man, absolutely. <laughs> well, no, well, good. Nunchuck to the face. What could bring people together? Like nunchucks to the face, right? Maybe that's better. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like admitting weakness. We don't like admitting fault. But that, that's what true worship really involves, is actually getting vulnerable before the Father. And it's tough. We live in a time where weakness is often punished or ridiculed or mocked. Or even if you admit weakness, we don't live in a culture that loves the idea of forgiveness or grace. We're afraid of each other. So to come together, and you're thinking to yourself, what do people think of my hair? What do people think of my shirt? What do people think of how I sing? You know, you don't want to sing behind people too close because they're going to hear that I can never hit that F sharp, even if I tried. And we just carry around such a defensiveness. God says, true bowers down will bow down in spirit and in, and in truth. And you, you, this is it. You, this is your time, though. This is like, oh, do I have to? No. Church, this is our time before our Father, our Dad, who chose us and sought us out. He didn't have to do it, but He wanted to do it. And this is the time and any time to just be vulnerable. God, I'm so afraid. And I hate my fear. And I'm ashamed of my fear in your presence. God, I'm so hurt. And I hate that I'm hurt. I can't fix this. God, I'm so angry, and I never want to be angry, but I still get angry. God, Father, Dad, know me. Still love me. Still choose me. Still want me, please. And the Father just says, I've always known, and I love you in Jesus. I've always known, and I chose you so that I would be here for this moment of vulnerability, so I could be your dad in your weakness. I could be your dad in your fear, so I could be your father in your anger and in your sin. What a treasure to be able to bow down before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. To have someone you can be completely vulnerable to and know you'll never be rejected or forsaken because he sought us out in the first place to be with us forever. And so what this can provide for us is just so much rest for your souls. I, you can ask yourself, 
boy, don't, don't we need rest for our souls that doesn't depend on the world behaving itself? Christian, don't you need to be able to find rest for your soul that doesn't depend on everyone around you behaving themselves? And this is what true worship of the Father provides for us. Worshiping by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. I have a God who can give me true rest when I go to be with him. Or when he comes to meet with me. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, you can't have a Father's Day message without telling dads how to live. So here we go. There's nothing about what I'm about to say that's meant to rob you of your rest in the Father or any guilt trips. But I have found in life that I need practical things to do to express some fatherhood. So as you're able, dads, if you want to be like the Father God who seeks people out to love them and provide them with rest and a safe place to be vulnerable, I want to encourage you in this. As you're able, give your kids regular, meaningful hugs. Do you know how long it takes for your kid to believe that you're actually hugging them? For each of my kids, it's a different amount of time. It's really weird. Some of them, it's like three seconds, and then they're like, ah. Some of them, one. Some of them, it's like seven seconds before they'll actually like stop trying to go play Lego again. Try to do that every day. Try to pray over them daily. For me, it's bedtime. I wouldn't say that I do a long prayer, but I try to make it meaningful. Dads, can you find something that you're genuinely proud of your kids about and tell them in a way that they might hear you? It's really easy to say, awesome, dude, or you're amazing to to younger people, right? And then we just get used to saying that to each other. So I'm not ever saying, like, flatter. Kids understand when they're kind of just getting told things. Find something that you're genuinely proud of your kids about and try to tell them in a way where they'll hear it. Because I think God the Father's like that. Humble yourself when you're wrong. I think there's few things that a dad can do to make his kids feel emotionally safe, like coming and giving them a really long, heartfelt apology when you've blown it. Try to be around. Watch out for hobbies your kids like. I still don't understand why my boys think that me helping them find that one Lego piece that they haven't been able to find for two hours is, like, better than Christmas. I don't get it. But they love it, so I try to do it, right? It's like giving you the Lego wasn't as good as finding that one black piece that's three high, two wide, and has a cut onto the top so that it's only one dot. I don't even understand. I don't need to understand. Dads, let's try to listen like God 
and exhort wisely. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when it feels like our kids are blowing it, it can really make us afraid and angry. But I've noticed that God the Father is able to listen to me talk about things for hours without ever getting frustrated or offering cheap advice. It's one of the weird things about God is how long he can listen to us and be patient with us while we're not getting it yet. And I really want to grow in it because I often offer really quick advice because I want my kids to just stop doing things that make me afraid. Confession. Don't use this against me later, you guys, okay? Don't say, Dad, are you doing that thing? It's forbidden. You can ask Mom if I'm doing that thing, but not me directly. And finally, I want to say, try to get at their hearts and don't be shrugged off. I feel like as a dad, sometimes I can be content with surface-level relationship. Like if one of the kids comes running in and they're just crying and maybe bleeding, and I'm like, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm fine. I'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> they go and slam the door to their bedroom and bleed all over the pillow, and Jack will come in and be like, what happened with so-and-so? And I'll be like, oh, they said they were fine. God the Father seeks out the heart of his children to really know what's going on inside them. I find this so challenging. But I want to be like my Heavenly Father and try to parent in spirit and in truth. Amen? So why don't we stand together? The worship team can come. Christian, can I really call you to believe in the goodness of of God the Father? Can I call you to believe that he sought you out because he wants you? He sought you out because he wanted you in your good days and your bad days, in your victories and in your garbage, because he wanted to be the one there caring for your heart. And leading you to a life of real humility and vulnerability with him. Can I call you to, in Jesus, believe that you really are righteous in God's sight because of the cross. That your whole life's worth of sins are covered by his blood. So that even though sometimes you might tell God, I deserve to be punished for this. He can say, yeah, but that's not going to happen. You're going to get grace again so that you'll learn to trust me more and find rest for your soul. Let's sing worship to the Lord.